0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Mikhail Sekeres about the new book, Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public's Trust. How the FDA was shaped by public health crises and patient advocacy, told against the background of the contentious hearings on the breast cancer drug Avastin. Mikhail, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much. What a pleasure it is to be here.
1: Right. So can you introduce yourself? What do you
0: do? I am a professor of medicine and chief of the Division of Hematology at the Sylvester Cancer Center at University of Miami. So um, that means that I um, oversee a division that includes uh, probably about 75 or 80 um, doctors and advanced practice providers, so nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And um, I specialize in treating um, older adults who have leukemia or related disorders. So I am a hematologist oncologist.
1: So you both a medical professional, but you also more towards govern governance of um, the issues within the field, is it?
0: Well, that is true. So I I joke with people that my time is divided fifty percent, fifty percent, and fifty percent <laughs> into seeing patients, doing research, and administrative responsibility. So everything that goes into uh, how a person is able to see a doctor. Um, get a consultation, uh, advice about how to treat a condition, and then actually to deliver that care.
1: So what got you into medicine in the first place? And then why were you so interested in this administration stuff as well?
0: I think that's a great question. Um, You know, we like to think that our Um, motivation for going into our specialties was um, entirely intellectual. And I could provide um, a variety of justification for how intriguing the biology of cancer is and how much we've gained in our understanding of it over the past few decades, and how the treatments today are truly revolutionary compared to what we had available decades ago. And all of that would be true. But, you know, I've always felt that it's emotions that that motivate us to go into a specific field. Um, So I think I was uh, motivated to go into um, medicine because of the care that I saw that doctors provided my own family members. And I was really motivated to go into cancer um, when I started my training as an intern and resident at Mass General Hospital, um, there was one story in particular that really resonated with me. Uh, I was an intern; it was my first night on call, and a woman was admitted to the intensive care unit. Um, she had metastatic ovarian cancer, was forty years old, and was having trouble breathing because fluid was accumulating in her lungs. Um we were about to place a breathing tube in her. And she said, you know what? I don't want that. Um, I, I think I'm ready to leave this earth. And, um, she declined the breathing tube and instead asked for oxygen. And, um, a couple of hours later we saw her husband bring in her two, her two children who were eight and 10 years old. She was only about 40 and we we realized she was saying goodbye to them. It was incredibly moving moment and there were a number of us who had to check our own emotions in a private room as we saw this unfold well the the husband you know left with the kids and then a couple of hours after that he and her best friend returned with a a bag full of cards um we saw her up all night with either her husband or her her friend holding up a, a clipboard with a card on it, and she was she was writing in them. And I, I turned to one of the senior residents uh, who was actually supervising me, and I said, "What? what is she signing? And, and, and he said, well, she's signing all those, those cards. And I said, what do you mean cards? What, what kind of cards are you talking about? And she was writing messages to her children for the next decade of birthdays that they would have bar and bat mitzvahs, holidays, a, a way to be part of their life and, and in truth, a, a way that she could live those years with them during her last hours on earth. As um, morning broke, we saw the sunrise over the Charles River just outside the hospital and uh, a nurse came to inform us that she had passed. And And that story kept circling back to me Um, And I realized that what I really wanted to specialize in was um, uh, 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 cancer patients and the treatment of cancer patients. And the reason is that I could be a a part of their lives um, and maybe it would be a part of their lives uh, on a road towards curing them of cancer. And maybe it would be a part of their lives as they transitioned to different goals of therapy and and eventually as as some of them do pass. um, And I recognize that by being part of their lives and and going on this journey with them, um, I was learning how to better live my own life. So that was, that may be more information than you were looking for, but that was the real motivation for going into medicine and for eventually specializing in the care of cancer patients.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's such a touching and moving story. So I was wondering from your experience, what would you say to your colleagues or students of medicine who might be considering um, sort of following your path?
0: My word, it's the most rewarding career you can imagine. There are very few um, career paths that we can take where um, we get to meet every walk of life. So there are days in my clinic when I care for people who have to scrape up a few coins to pay for the metro ride to come see me um, and who have a very precarious um, social situation uh, where where they're just getting by while trying to deal with a cancer diagnosis. And I have days when, you know, people will fly in on their private jets to come see me. So it's this incredible spectrum of humanity that we um, encounter. And we're invited, I would say we're invited as as um reluctant acquaintances uh into these people's lives because nobody wants a cancer diagnosis. we're We're getting to meet people at their most vulnerable. We're invited into this experience and and we're asked to help, uh, which is is truly a privilege um and like I said, I've learned to live a, I think a hopefully a better life by um, watching how my patients live their lives.
1: So today we're talking about your latest book, which is Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public's Trust. So how did you arrive to this book? Why did you write
0: it? (laughs) Well, this book was a number of years in the, um, I don't want to say in the making, but um, uh, maybe in the percolating as I was thinking about it. Uh, I, um, as I mentioned, I do... Um, research, and I I do a a bunch of different types of research. So everything from thinking about the basic biology of cancer and identifying some of the genetic underpinnings that that drive cancers, all the way to conducting clinical trials, um, thinking about patient-reported outcomes, and even how we define value in cancer care. One of the hats I've worn during my career was to be a member of the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee at the US FDA. Now, this is the committee that the FDA turns to for advice on whether or not to approve a given cancer drug. And uh, I was on this committee for five years and chaired it for two. And one of the meetings we held was extraordinarily contentious. And it surrounded a breast cancer drug by the name of Avastin. And the question that was posed to us was, Um, Should Avastin remain on the market? Uh, An initial trial had been quite promising, um, but a follow-up study in the same drug and a very similar patient population actually showed that the drug did not work that well, did not improve patient survival and didn't improve their quality of life. Uh, So in those situations, under a special approval mechanism that the FDA has called accelerated approval, um, the FDA has the option of removing the drug from the market, and they were asking our advice on whether or not they should do that. So that trial happened, and subsequent to that, the US FDA went on a joggernaut of approving drugs under this accelerated approval mechanism. And what accelerated approval means is that um, it, it has to be a drug that is designed for uh, people who uh, have few other treatment options and very serious illnesses. It's a drug that's special. It's unique. So it's not a quote unquote me too drug. It's not similar to some other drug that's actually already on the market. And it's allowed to be approved on what's called an interim marker of a clinically meaningful benefit. In other words, something that may promise that a person um, might live longer or might live better, but it's not guaranteed. Uh, one example of this for uh, would be a drug that shows that it can shrink um, cancerous tumors, um, and that may predict that that drug will allow somebody to live longer. Or in the case of HIV and AIDS, maybe it's a drug that reduces the viral load of the infection, and that could predict that somebody would live longer with that diagnosis. So the FDA approved a, a lot of drugs in a short period of time, um, actually, over the past five years under this accelerated approval mechanism. And we're starting to see some of those drugs, the the subsequent trials that are are supposed to demonstrate that, yes, indeed, these drugs do work very well, actually have, have failed, have shown that the drugs don't work as well and the FDA is starting to pull them from the market. So all of this, as I mentioned, was percolating in my mind for a few years, and I decided it might be the right time to talk about the history of the FDA how that history influences the decisions the FDA makes today and the whole notion of accelerated approval and whether that um, either bolsters the trust we have in the FDA or actually compromises that trust.
1: Okay so let's jump right in and just to make sure that everybody's on the same page and especially our international audience Can you describe what exactly is FDA?
0: So the Food and Drug Administration in the United States is the regulatory body that uh, is supposed to guarantee the safety and efficacy of the drugs that we receive. Um, And it also governs the safety of of food. But in this book, Drugs and the FDA, I do focus on the, the arm of the FDA that focuses on drug safety and efficacy. So it's the reason we can go and get a prescription from our doctor and take a drug and trust that that drug will be uh, relatively safe and that it will be effective, that it will actually treat uh, disease as it promises that it will.
1: Yeah. And even thinking that although it is a U.S. agency, other agencies around the world are also looking uh, to decisions made by it, isn't it?
0: So actually um agencies around the world do pay attention to each other but they aren't beholden to each other. So the US FDA makes its own decisions about its own drugs and it, it does talk to um the EMA the European body uh that looks at this as as well or the um the body in the UK that um, does the same thing, that governs the safety and efficacy of drugs. But like I mentioned, they aren't beholden to each other. So it is entirely possible that um, somebody in Europe could come to the United States to get a drug that isn't available in Europe, just as it's possible that someone in the United States could fly to Europe to get a drug that isn't available in the United States.
1: So how did it all begin?
0: So... um, you know it was actually a series of tragic events that shaped the core mission of the fda and and we don't have to go back that far in time to reach an era when the simple fact of a medicine being safe was guaranteed throughout the 19th century um, entrepreneurs had absolute freedom to manufacture and market any food or drug in any way and for any purpose these were called patent medicines, and these patent medicines and nostrums had dubious names like Hamlin's wizard oil. Mm-hmm. They weren't exactly the medicine, m- medicinal panaceas that they claimed to be. So, for example, Hamlin's wizard oil advertised itself as a wondrous cure for ailments ranging from toothache, rheumatism, lame back, hydrophobia, and pneumonia all the way to cancer. It even had uh, this cocksure slogan that bragged, there is no sore, it will not heal, no pain, it will not subdue. Isn't that reassuring? Well, in in fact, it, it shouldn't have been reassuring because drugs could put anything they wanted to and claim anything on their labels back in the 19th century. And in the US, it wasn't until 1902 that progress towards regulation of food and drugs began. And this was spurred by a tragic event. There were 22 children in uh, St. Louis, Missouri and Camden, New Jersey, who were sick with smallpox and diphtheria. And this was treated with vaccines back at the turn of that century. Well, they were given vaccines and there was no regulation on how the vaccines were produced. But in this case, the vaccines were contaminated with another deadly toxin, tetanus. So 22 children died as a result of this. There was a huge public outcry and this is when the U.S. Congress passed the Pure Food and Drugs Act. This is the very first time they created a, a government body to regulate uh, food and drugs. But they didn't give that body a lot of teeth. They didn't even require at that point in the early 1900s that drugs have to be safe. So you have to put yourself in the first few decades of the 20th century, three of the top 10 causes of death back then were pneumonia, tuberculosis, and diarrhea or enteritis, all infections. So it was really a worldwide priority to identify drugs that could fight these infections, antibiotics. Um, And uh, that's what a lot of groups were working on. And it's remarkable that 100 years later, another infection, COVID-19, created a pandemic of such epic proportions that it vaulted ahead of cancer, heart disease, and the sum total of deaths from the two world wars to be the leading cause of death in the US once again in 2020 and 2021. And you saw the same imperative to develop vaccines to treat COVID-19 over the past few years. Well, in the US, there was a company called the S.E. Massingill Company in, in Tennessee. They wanted to create a liquid form of an antibiotic called sulfanilamide that would be easier for patients, particularly children, to ingest. So the company's chief chemist, a guy named Harold Cole Watkins, added substances to make the drug more palatable, including raspberry extract, saccharin, caramel, and the sweet tasting solvent, diethylene glycol, which today we would actually call antifreeze. So in September of 1937, 240 gallons of the medicine were distributed across the US and doctors began prescribing it regularly. Um, but then 71 adults and 34 children died from taking the tainted antibiotic. A team of FDA invest- inspectors tracked down the company's 200 salesmen to identify the drugstore and doctor's offices that had stocked the elixir. You can imagine store by store Druggist by druggist and prescription by prescription, the FDA team worked to find every patient who still had a bottle of this tainted sulfanilamide and confiscated the remaining medicine, a total of 234 of 240 gallons distributed. Well, public outrage reached a crescendo and the U.S. president, Franklin Roosevelt, signed the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act into law in 1938. That was the very first time, the very first time that drugs were actually required to be safe in the U.S.
1: So how was the uh, agency structured? Can we have a maybe understanding of uh, how the processes kind of flow within the, the agency itself?
0: Well, so for the first time at that point, companies had to submit data on the safety of their drugs. The reason this S.E. Massingill company was able to manufacture sulfonamide is no one required any of these, this data prior to this. So their chief chemist just tasted it and probably had a couple of other people taste it and said, yeah, this tastes pretty good. We think people will take it. And then started to distribute it and people prescribed it with without a single element of data supporting the fact that it was actually safe. So now companies actually had to do testing. Um, they had to do testing in a, in a preclinical setting. So, um, either with models of safety and uh, of safety or in animals, for example, mice to see whether or not drugs were safe before they could start testing it in small amounts in humans to, to start to make sure that it was safe. But, you know, at that point, there was still no requirement that a drug had to be effective, that it actually had to work. And this took another worldwide tragedy. Um, and in, um, in the U.S. in 1960, this, this all started right, from our perspective. This had been going on in Europe for a few years already. But in the U.S., there was a, um, an employee who was brand new to the FDA. and Her name was Frances Oldham Kelsey. And her very first assignment at the FDA was to review a new drug application for the drug thalidomide. Now, thalidomide had been marketed in Europe since the mid-1950s as the first safe sleeping pill. It was also considered highly effective at treating pregnant women with morning sickness. And at the time, there was a huge amount of fear around the use of barbiturates and their side effects and the fact that people would become addicted to them. So there was really a hunger to develop some other drug that could have some of the same effects as barbiturates, uh, but weren't addictive. So thalidomide became so popular... It was used almost as regularly as aspirin in some countries. And with this success in mind, the company responsible, f- responsible for distributing the drug in the U.S., Richardson Merrill, was really chomping at the bit to get the drug approved to also capitalize on the U.S. market. In fact, they, they anticipated a pretty quick approval by the FDA, so they already had a warehouse full of the drug ready for sale. But Francis Oldham Kelsey had concerns regarding the lack of long-term toxicity studies. She described her concerns in a letter to the company, but instead of providing well-designed studies to kind of support the safety, the company responded with what amounted to individual testimonials. So people writing in and saying, yeah, this is a great drug. It's really safe, but without any data supporting it. So that only heightened Kelsey's concerns. And um, she refused to allow thalidomide to move forward for approval and requesting additional data on the drug. Uh, she even made the comment that the company was particularly disappointed because they really wanted to get the drug on the market before Christmas, because Christmas is apparently the season for sedatives and hypnotics. Hmm. The drug, the company kept calling her and then just came right out and said to her, we want to get this drug on the market before Christmas because that's when our best sales are. Well, she was unmoved by this uh this logic. At the same time, uh, in Germany, a young couple consulted a German physician whose name was Bidekund Lenz about their son Jan, who had been born with two short arms. Now, Lenz was already aware, um, he's a, a pediatrician, and he ran a, a pediatrics unit in a local hospital and he started to see a bunch of kids who were born with short arms or short legs or who were missing ears so pretty severe birth defects and he started to wonder if there was an epidemic of this um so lens and jan's father a guy named carl herman schulte hillen worked together to see if they could find a common cause and they they kind of Bundled in, in into Schulte-Hillen's Volkswagen and, and drove around northern Germany searching for other children with similar deformed limbs, and uh, Schulte-Hillen brought along a photo of Jan to show people to to demonstrate to them that listen it, it it is nothing to be ashamed of. I have a child who has birth defects also because a lot of these kids were were hidden away. People were were, were ashamed of them. Well, this got people to trust him. They they let him into their houses. And both Schulte, Hillen, and Lenz would would go into their bathrooms and rifle around their their medicine cabinets looking for a pill bottle with thalidomide in it. And eventually, they identified 46 children born with limb deformities, and almost all of their mothers had taken thalidomide. So this was a very informal sort of study that they embarked in. They similarly looked at 300 kids who were born without limb deformities and found that none of their mothers had taken thalidomide. They took all of this information to the manufacturer who shrugged their shoulders and said, we don't care. Well, then they went to the German press and um, that finally stopped sales of the drug in Europe. But all told, uh, about 10,000 kids in 46 countries had been born with deformities thought to be caused by the drug. So uh, of course, all of this news came to the US. Kelsey was aware of it, and of course, the thalidomide was never approved for sales in the US. And, and the public recognized what an incredible safety bullet they had dodged uh, because of one person at the FDA who just had a hunch that something was wrong with the drug. This sparked a senator uh, from Tennessee in the United States uh, who, was, who was best known as actually leading the Senate Special Committee to Investigate Organized Crime, the mafia in the U.S. So he was recognized as this guy who pursued, you know, crooks. So he started to paint this picture of the crooked pharmaceutical industry and how he was in a similar role with them. And eventually he was able to advance a bill that was signed into law by President Kennedy in 1962 that finally required that drugs actually be effective, that they actually do what they say they're gonna do, they improve people's lives, and it provided the structure for conducting clinical trials to demonstrate that drugs were effective.
1: So another big event in the previous century that we know is the AIDS epidemic. So how did FDA manage this? What was uh, the role of the agency?
0: Well, so this was an incredibly interesting section of the book to write uh, for me. And it was it was really interesting because I wrote this uh, during the, the first year of the COVID pandemic. So, you know, think back to um, 2020 and what we were dealing with, with uh, COVID-19. And it was very similar to how people were reacting to HIV. We had a virus that we really didn't understand very well. We didn't quite understand how it was transmitted. We didn't quite understand how dangerous it was. There was a lot of speculation about its origin. Uh, you recall that it, that, that it was tied to a, a marketplace in China. And there was speculation about whether it could have been actually some um, secret government pr- program with a virus that was released into the world, just like there was the same speculation about HIV. We had, a in the US, we had a government uh, that did a very poor job of communicating about the virus and um, actually provided misinformation. Um, I remember exquisitely well that when this was first breaking, really in the beginning of 2020 here in the US, there was a lot of information about how important it was to wipe down surfaces and how that's the main form of transmission of the virus. When in fact, what we should have been telling people to do was wear masks because the drug, because the virus was aerosolized. Again, very similar to the misinformation that was circulating around HIV, where even the New York Times reported that the virus um, was plentiful in saliva, so nobody should kiss each other. Um, and that was something that took a few years to debunk, because after all, it was the New York Times that had published it. So for me, this was an incredibly fascinating section to write, and I could really feel the, the fear of the unknown of people during the HIV and AIDS years. I mean, I was certainly alive during those years, but I was a kid, so I really wasn't in the mix the way a lot of adults were, and particularly adults who were at high risk. And I pored over the um, original publications in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Reports about a small group of, of men who were gay, who got this very rare pneumonia and this very rare skin cancer that had previously only been seen in older uh, Mediterranean men. And uh, this was again in the setting of a, of a government that communicated poorly. And, and, and actually in, in the 1980s in the US, a president who wouldn't even utter the word AIDS for a few years because he felt it was just too salacious to say publicly. Hmm. so that was all the lead-in to the legislation that I talked about earlier, this whole notion of accelerated approval. You had a bunch of patients who were desperately ill where there were no treatments available to them. You had a government that wasn't listening, and it led to AIDS activism, the most notorious group of which was ACT UP, And they staged major protests that actually got news coverage and basically wrote the script for patient advocacy uh, to change um, government regulatory bodies. Uh, They staged a protest at FDA headquarters that shut down the, the U.S. FDA for a day and earned the right to be part of discussions on committees, sitting shoulder to shoulder with scientists, with regulators, with pharmaceutical companies to bring these drugs to market quicker. So there's this tremendous fear, this tremendous need uh, among people who were dying to get some kind of drug to treat their illness. And they were successful. That activism in the setting of a recalcitrant government with a very scary disease um, led to, uh, in 1992, the, the passage of, laws here in the U.S. that allowed drugs to be approved under this accelerated approval mechanism.
1: So you mentioned that yours also were a part of the proceedings on the Avastin, or the hearings. So can you describe your role in it and how was it for you?
0: Yeah. So so now let's turn to what happened with accelerated approval. The first few years it was available in the 1990s um there were a bunch of drugs that were specific for hiv or aids uh, that were approved under under the accelerated approval mechanism just as it was designed but very quickly that started to be commandeered by cancer drugs and um within a decade cancer drugs became the number one indication for accelerated approvals in the us and basically have had a monopoly on accelerated approvals uh, since that time One of those drugs was Avastin. So Avastin was um, uh, already approved in a couple of cancers, including colon cancer, and then was studied in clinical trials in women with metastatic breast cancer. So it meets the definition of very serious life-threatening disease where there aren't adequate drugs available. And in the, the trial that led to Avastin's accelerated approval, Avastin was combined with another chemotherapy, and used in half the women. The other half of the women received just the chemotherapy alone. And women who received Avastin plus the chemotherapy didn't live longer, didn't have a better quality of life, but they went longer period of time without their breast cancer worsening. That's a, a something called progression-free survival. So you can see how, it again, it fits the definition of accelerated approval. This is an interim marker that is reasonably likely to predict that women are gonna live longer, that they're gonna survive longer. But in and of itself, progression-free survival, meaning their cancer doesn't progress as quickly as women who don't get the drug, it doesn't mean that, that a woman lives longer. Mm-hmm. And on that study, women who got Avastin had a progression-free survival that was six months longer than women who didn't get Avastin, and that led to the accelerated approval. But in that setting, the FDA said, but that means that you're going to have to conduct trials that at the very minimum show that women have a progression-free survival that's six months longer when they get Avastin, but ideally show that they actually live longer when they get Avastin. So um, Avastin was approved in 2008. The results of these trials came out around 2011 and showed not only... Did women getting a not have a progression-free survival as long as six months? In fact, it had shrunk to just a few weeks. They didn't live longer. They didn't live better. Their quality of life wasn't any better. And in one of those studies, their survival was arguably worse when they got a Vastin than when they didn't get a Vastin. So when that happened, the FDA called a committee, which I was a member of. Uh, at the very beginning to vote on whether or not Avastin should remain on the market. And our committee voted that Avastin should be removed from the market. It didn't appear to benefit women. And it had substantial toxicities. And those toxicities included bleeding, included liver failure, included suppression of the immune system, and most importantly, included some women dying directly from getting Avastin. FDA, based on our committee's recommendation, the FDA said, we agree, we think this drug should be pulled from the market. And they turned to the company and said, uh, the company was Genentech, you should pull this drug from the market. And the company said, nope, it's within our legal right to say no to you, we're going to keep it on the market. What are you going to do next? That led to the FDA's holding a hearing where it was the FDA's lawyers going against Genentech's lawyers. And now our FDA committee became the jury to that trial. And that was the basis for my participation in these hearings. I was one of the six members of this jury to watch the FDA's lawyers face off against Genentech's lawyers.
1: So how did this proceed? What did you decide?
0: Well, the hearings took place over two days, and um, they were very different from other hearings in which we participated. We. Um, you know, stay in a hotel, uh, not a fancy hotel. Remember, this is taxpayer dollars in the US that supports our staying in that hotel. So it's not a fancy hotel. Um, The the night before the meeting, and we're taken in a small shuttle to the FDA headquarters themselves. And that morning we were in the shuttle, but the shuttle didn't make its normal left-hand turn to go into the front entrance of the FDA because that was blocked by so many protesters. And we looked out and saw, um, women and men in pink shirts, people with megaphones, even one man strumming on a guitar um, singing what he called the Avastin fight song. And we were taken to a back entrance of the FDA to then go through TSA level security, just like you would at an airport to get into the building. We walked into the great room at the FDA, which is where these hearings are held. And that room is usually kind of, you know, a third or a half full Uh, opened the doors and it was pandemonium. Uh, It was bursting to the gills. People were talking loudly and there was a scrum of photographers and um, network news cameras sitting around the table where we would be sitting. Um, So we participated in that hearing and the structure of it is that at first the FDA gets up and it makes its case. Right. And its case was that they the FDA felt the drug should be removed from the market for the reasons I just discussed. The, the drug didn't seem to work very well. It had substantial toxicities. And under the rules of accelerated approval, the FDA has the right to pull the drug from the market. We then are able to ask questions at the FDA. And then the pharmaceutical companies' lawyers present their case where they made the contention that actually the drug worked just fine and the toxicities weren't that bad. And um, they should be allowed to keep the drug on the market while they conduct one additional trial uh, that they were absolutely convinced was gonna finally demonstrate that Avastin worked in women with breast cancer. Probably the most moving part of these proceedings though, is that in in the US, the FDA, when we have one of these meetings, it's, it's a transparent process. So it is streamed live. You can watch it live and anyone can register to speak at the hearing during an open mic session. So we sat as over 30 women got up and very bravely told their stories of their breast cancer and how um, they were treated with Avastin and credited Avastin to their being alive today. And these were very moving testimonies where women told us about their relationships with their um, partners um, with their kids, with their grandkids. They talked to us about trips that they were able to take because they were still alive. And, and again, they credited the, this all to Avastin. So this is how the the two days unfolded. And um, the days concluded where we have to actually vote. And, and we have you know a small microphone in front of our desk and on that microphone is yes, no, or or abstain. There are actually buttons that we press and was 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 then um put to us about whether or not um whether fast and should be removed from the market for breast cancer and um then when we vote the results of that vote go up on screens around the room and you can literally hear that the the energy of the room sucked out as we vote and then there's this delay as they tally the votes and then put the slides up and there's this reaction from the crowd um that was aghast uh, at our boat, and our boat was unanimously to remove the truck from the market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer,
1: all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So now
1: coming to today's day, I suppose. So what is the role of FDA now? And uh, What kind of roles did it play in the development of vaccines? You already said a little bit about the COVID vaccines. Can you just expand a little bit? What was its role and perhaps maybe something that they could have done better or...?
0: Yeah, it's you know, it's a great question. Um, What we saw happen over the past two years was, first of all, a miracle of science. And, and I don't know how much people appreciate that, that the development of vaccines so quickly in reaction to a virus and the fact that these vaccines have been honestly wildly effective is mind-boggling. I mean, this is usually clinical trials and research and an approval process that would have taken years. And we saw it really occur over about a year and a half. I mean, that it, that is a scientific and regulatory miracle. In, in this case, with the vaccines, I think the FDA worked quickly, I mean, quickly by its standards. Because remember, the FDA was born out of tragedy. The FDA always has to first focus on the safety, safety, safety of things that it approves and then the efficacy. So I think they took actually a a very quick amount of time in um, assessing the safety of these vaccines and getting them approved over to the CDC, which acted very quickly in the U.S. to... Um, give their nod of approval as well, and then get them um, out to people very, very quickly. Uh, uh, This is remarkable. And I don't know that people appreciate how remarkable it is.
1: So another drug that has been on on the minds of many people, and uh, for me especially, because I work in this field, which is the aducanumab or aduhelm, which was recently approved. Can you tell us a little bit what was going on there? (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's a, yeah. So um, uh, adjuhelm, um, of course, was, um, it, it is a drug that's been developed uh, for the treatment of patients with um, with Alzheimer's. And um, my understanding of the studies looking at it um, showed that it really didn't improve the clinical endpoints that people were hoping it would, but it did seem to reduce the plaques that are um, seen on, on um, radiographic scans of the head that uh, are associated with Alzheimer's. And in this case, an FDA advisory committee, very similar to the advisory committee in which I participated, reviewed the data and said, basically, no way. This drug shouldn't be approved. It doesn't work. But the FDA reminded everyone that our committees, so in this case, the neurologic advisory committee, just like the oncologic drugs advisory committee are just that, advisory. So our votes um, over 90% of the time predict how the FDA is gonna vote, but don't assure it. So in this case, the FDA decided to um, trump the committee's vote and say, nope, we're going to approve it anyway. Well, that was a disaster. Um, many members of that neurologic committee quit in protest. And um, subsequently, the FDA modified their label to restrict the drug's use even further because it, it, it just it simply doesn't work very well and they didn't want widespread use. And then subsequent to that, we've heard about falsification of data about whether or not the drug truly reduced those plaques. Uh, that was the basis for the FDA's approval. Now, uh, you know, it's a part of me that just marvels at how history repeats itself, because the very first approval for Avastin, which occurred in 2008, when it first received accelerated approval, that occurred from the FDA, despite a negative vote from the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee. So just like with Adjuhelm, the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee voted no against Avastin when it when it first came up for accelerated approval and the FDA decided to try that. Well, the FDA regretted that decision, I'm sure, just as I'm sure they regretted the Abduhelm decision.
1: So where does the agency go from here?
0: Well, um, you know, I I just wrote an editorial piece for for Stat News um, talking about this. And I think that the FDA has a trust problem. And it's not that the public should trust it less when it pulls a drug from the market. I actually think we should celebrate a drug's uh, uh, the FDA's safeguarding the health of the public just as much as we celebrate when the FDA brings a drug to market that's highly effective and safe. But the FDA doesn't communicate very well the whole notion of accelerated approval. And my suggestion is that drugs that receive accelerated approval should have on their label a big fat asterisk. And that asterisk should say, we've made the drug available based on the data we have so far, but there are more data to come. And this may just be a temporary approval. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the FDA has done a very good job of communicating the limitations of accelerated approval, and that it may actually lead to what one FDA official refer to as accelerated withdrawal that they could actually pull the drug from the market
1: so you you just mentioned the public trust so that's another big issue here what what about the public trust how can the agency maintain it and especially in, in nowadays when we have such easy communication between different stakeholders as well so patients can really communicate very right away to the agency and sometimes like the a couple of drugs now, be, uh, also as Alzheimer drugs, for example, they have only been put forwards as uh, statements of their research rather than uh, the actual papers that pa- people can uh, look through to get the data in. So how do we maintain the trust without uh, losing this sort of fast development of uh, new drugs?
0: I, you know, I I really think it all boils down to communication, and we saw this happening with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. The Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. just had a a massive mea culpa this summer where they acknowledged that their communication was terrible about the virus, and they had to completely revamp um, their communication strategies within the CDC and how they're vetting the data. Uh, I think the same is true with, with the FDA. The FDA prides itself on its transparency as it's making decisions about drugs. It it does it with open doors as opposed to other regulatory bodies where they do it behind closed doors. Um, But I think they can do a much better job of of communicating this to the public. I believe the FDA has taken a stance that when it approves a drug, whether it's under accelerated approval or regular approval, that um, it's a safe and effective drug and everyone can trust the FDA. I think it's okay for the FDA to actually say, you know, in some circumstances, we're approving these drugs quickly because there's a public health threat. Um, So we're still waiting on data to come. It may not be quite as safe as we think it is, um, but it's safe enough right now, uh, balanced with its efficacy, that we do want to make it available because otherwise people are dying with no treatments. I think it's okay for them to say that. I think on the whole, the public will get it. Maybe I'm naive about that. but I think taking the stance that whatever we do, it, a drug is safe and effective, is, is only going to um, wind up biting the FDA when it does eventually have to approve the drug, when it does have to withdraw a drug.
1: So are there actually sort of the best way to do this? Because these processes, they sound so complex and just so many different moving parts. Do you know how to do it well?
0: <laughs> you mean? Do I have all the answers? Not quite. <laughs> um, I wish I did. Um, I, 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 As I said, I think one strategy the FDA can take is communication. Um, I think another area where the U.S. FDA is different from some other regulatory bodies is that um, in the U.S., our FDA doesn't consider cost of a drug. So I think another area of public trust that comes into play is when the FDA approves a drug It doesn't work that great. Um, Maybe it works a little bit, but not as much as people hope. And people are charged an astronomical amount for that drug. Um, It's different in other areas of the world where cost is actually considered as part of the approval process. And if a drug just works a little bit better than nothing at all, uh, but costs a large amount of money, the regulatory body will say, no, it's not worth it. We're not going to approve it. So I do think that in the US, we can probably do a better, well, I know we can do a better job with communication. Um, And I think one approach moving forward is also to start to figure out a way that the FDA can consider costs um, as it's approving drugs.
1: So what discoveries in your research for writing your book, um, drugs and FDA surprised you the most?
0: (laughs) That's kind of, you know, it's some of the fun parts of writing a book and um, doing this sort of research, because there are a lot of times that you'll hear an anecdote or, or, you know, someone will say, oh, well, this is truth. And then you get to research it and see if that person's really right. And um, I tried to take the approach that newspapers often take, where I would look for two sources to validate a fact. One of the facts that I thought was really incredible is that um, when our committee, when the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee is considering a drug, so during that Four hour, five hour period. I had heard this as a rumor and I was able to verify it. That drugs manufacturer, their stock is not traded. Mm. And the reason is that because the FDA is transparent and this stuff is live streamed, what used to happen when the drug, when the when the company stocks were traded is that the market would fluctuate wildly depending on every comment a member of our committee would make. So you know, imagine a major company like Pfizer or Merck um, has a drug that comes before the FDA and and trading of their stocks halts for that four hour period I thought that was really cool and mm-hmm. it, it really kind of tells you the financial implications of some of the decisions that are made by the FDA when I was interviewing for this role on the committee I met with Rick Pasteur who heads up the cancer branch of the FDA and I I remember we went to lunch at the uh, FDA's commissary and uh, at the time Rick had to remind me that he wasn't allowed to buy me lunch as a government employee so I had to buy my own lunch and I mm. and he said but well, you know you can you can bill us for it afterwards and I decided to save the US taxpayers a few bucks by not, not billing the government back for that sandwich <laughs> <laughs> um, and as I, and I said to him do you ever feel bad about saying no to a drug when That saying no could actually cause a drug company to go out of business. And he made the point to me, he was very, I really have a lot of respect for Rick. He's a brilliant guy who's very politically savvy and very pragmatic. And he said to me, um, you know, um, financial institutions, investors aren't stupid. They know how to read the scientific data better than um, scientists and most scientists and doctors. So if a company has a drug that works really well, they will be flush with money from investors. He said it's only when a company has a drug that doesn't work that well that they have trouble getting the funding. And that was kind of a telling statement. It reminded me about just how much um, finances, um, industry, um, the economics of drug development and drug sales are surrounding these decisions that, that occur at this isolated regulatory body.
1: So, what's your favorite part of the day or the work at FDA? Do you have to communicate with different kinds of specialists, or like across the fields, and do they have good coffee there?
0: <laughs> so, um, I'm, a, I'm considered a special government employee, which means I don't have any kind of permanent role at the FDA. When I did go to these committees, um, you it, it is rather austere. So you go and um, the government pays you an hourly rate for being a special government employee and also gives you a daily amount that it will reimburse you for food. Because it has that reimbursement for food, the government considers it double dipping if they were actually to supply us with any food or even a bottle of water. So when you go to FDA headquarters, my advice is, bring a drink along with you because (laughs) the government isn't going to supply it to you. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) Um, I um, came out of my work with the FDA with an incredible appreciation of um, the FDA team. They consider themselves a team. They work very closely with each other. They're very supportive of each other. And at the end of the day, they just want to get it right. They are not there to rush drugs to market. They are not there to deprive pharmaceutical companies of a chance to market their drug. They are there to get it right. And they take safeguarding the health of the public very, very seriously. Um, you know, I never um, served in the military here in the U.S. And I, I really look at my um, any role I have in the government as a special government employee as uh, basically my my attempt at giving back to my country. Uh, when we are sitting around that table, um, you know, there, there, there's not a lot of frivolity. Um, we take it, the role very, very seriously for every drug that came before us. Um, I would think about the doctor practicing in rural Florida who has to figure out whether to use this drug uh, to treat a patient, whether the balance of safety and efficacy is really there and whether the drug label is understandable. Um, I also think about the patients who will receive this drug and um, the side effects of that drug that may occur. So you you really think first and foremost that you are, that that you have as your responsibility um, trying to ensure the health of the public.
1: Well, this has been a truly fascinating and really insightful discussion. So what are you focusing on now and what will be your next project?
0: (laughs) Um, I have truly enjoyed it. Thank you for all of the insightful questions uh, I'm working on um, essays right now um, as I mentioned I had an essay recently in, in stat news um, I had an editorial uh, this summer in uh, the Washington Post um, talking about the um, Dobbs decision uh, the impact of um, of uh, states now deciding uh, abortion rights and how that affects us as cancer providers and our patients um, I'll have another essay coming out as well, uh, talking about um, clinical trials and how well um, patients truly understand the goals of those trials when they enroll to them.
1: And what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book?
0: Well, I'm a big believer in independent booksellers. And down here in Miami, Florida, uh, Drugs and the FDA is available at um, Books and Books. Uh, which is one of our major independent booksellers you can also find drugs in the fda of course at amazon barnes and nobles wherever you buy books and i can be followed on twitter um, at Mikhail seferis
1: well thank you so much for joining me today
0: thank you so much for the privilege of being on your program